How do multifamily owners retain renters and increase net operating income? Well, we're on here to find out. You're listening to Amenitizer Die, tactics and strategies for the front lines of multifamily. I'm your host, Scott Patterson, Marine Corps veteran and founder of Tumble Smart Laundry, on a mission to increase your NOI through those shared laundry rooms. So today we're going to do this one a little bit different, uh, as I have Paul Berger on, uh, Mr. Multifamily himself, who's been a reporter at Globe Street, uh, editor-in-chief of National Apartment Association, you know, the NAA, and uh, he was at the Washington Post for a little stint. Uh, welcome, Paul. Happy to have you join us. Hello, everyone. Yeah, great to be here. So yeah, like like I said, right, I want to do this a little bit different. Um, obviously, you're not not a multifamily operator. You're not an owner. You're not you're not shilling some some new amenity um, or, or 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 property technology, right? I, I, uh, I actually live in a house, a single family home. I think I was a renter for a grand total of like 14 months of my life. I either lived at home so, with mom and dad or lived in my own place. <laughs> so do, do you want to just tell folks a little bit about your history? Uh, how did you come from the post over to multifamily into uh, your real estate reporting career? Um, I feel like you need no introduction, but you know, maybe, maybe there's, some well, you know, I appreciate you asking because I'm usually the one asking the questions. Right. So, um, yeah. I was a journalism student in college. I went to James Madison university in Virginia and I graduated with a degree there and I became a sports writer and a sports editor for a daily newspaper. And I did that for about 10 years and that didn't pay any money. And once I got old enough to be an adult, um, you know, the fun times ended, I guess, uh, I needed to make some real salary. So I started working for association publications and I ended up at the National Apartment Association, uh, writing about apartment living back in 2002, I think. Um, and really loved it, loved the people, loved the industry. I mean, it's a relatable industry. I mean, apartment living is everyday life. So there were tons of stories to write. I enjoyed talking to people. I've uh, been in this industry ever since. Most recently, I've been working for Globe Street, which is a commercial real estate website that covers all forms of commercial real estate, including apartments. So if you want to ask me any questions about warehousing or industrial space, I could probably do that too. Um, but no, apartment is is kind of my specialty. And uh, I'd like to think people know me. I go to as many events as I can and try to learn and talk to as many people as I can about what's going on today. Yeah, great. So right now, the industry is in, a, in an interesting place, right? We, we went through the pandemic and we had a lot of cheap capital. And now all that's getting pulled away, right? Interest rates are being hiked, um, quantitative tightening on the, the Fed. Uh, what, what are some of the things that you're seeing out there in the market as an effect for, for these sort of in this environment? Well, it's been a really great run. In fact, it's it's been a really great run since I've been in the industry. There was that period around 2008 and 2009, the great financial, what do they call it? The Great Depression, I think, or whatever it was. Yeah, great, great crisis, the, financial the, crisis. The great something. Everything is the great something. Um, so, yeah, that was a crazy, awful time uh, for apartment owners and renters. They were offering concessions and, and things were just, ugh. I don't know how many people are in the industry today who went through that. And, and the reason I say that is when you go to these conferences, a lot of times the people on stage or their employees, their younger employees, they've never gone through a downtime. 
and the downtime seems to have started, knock on wood. I, I don't know. I mean, you saw headlines that say rents are actually falling for the first time in year, years, multi-years, whatever it is. So we'll see how things go. I mean, we'll see how things go in the spring. That's the big leasing season. And maybe things get better then. I don't know. But the word recession comes up everywhere and inflation comes up everywhere. And like you said, uh, the financing has been tough. Transactions are down. Um, yeah, tough, tough times seem on the horizon, but we'll see. Right. And I mean, and then, you know, I had the just this morning, actually, the uh, United Airlines president said, I watch I watch MSNBC every morning. But if I didn't, I don't think I would know there was a, a, a recession coming up based on our numbers. Right. And so we see it a little bit differently. Right. Because United Airlines, that's totally based on travel. Uh, that's tend to be t- more tied to consumer behavior and, and business travel, typically, which drives a lot of that industry. But real estate, uh, heavily driven by interest rates. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and the other side is that rents, you know, everyone knows this rent is usually the largest portion of someone's paycheck or expenses for that month. Right. And we we had all this great rent growth. You know, typically real estate is a cycle, right? And you have ups and downs. You know, it's always, everyone's always calling, are we going down? Are we going up? You know, and but you don't really know until, you know, five years later anyways. Um, but as we're looking at the way that these funds have been set up, right? And there was so much money put out there back in, you know, from the first stimulus and then the second stimulus. Um, where, where do we look to make up the difference as these things start to go down, right? In my head, you know, I'm a, this whole podcast is about amenities, right? My head is you start looking towards ancillary revenue. And that's something that we've been hearing from our partners, um, from VCs that we've talked to, right? Is that um, no longer can you just look at rent as your sort of core driver of income for those properties. What are you what are you seeing in the market as strategies or or ideas surrounding that like kind of change? I don't know if this is a I don't think this is something new, but I do remember hearing apartment operators bundling amenities and having one charge rather than having some sort of a la carte situation. And that's somehow that was presented in a more favorable way to the renters. I remember Camden, uh, which always seems to be on the cutting edge of, of ideas. You know, they talked about their technology bundle. This was a couple of years ago where there was just one technology fee, I think was the word. So that was a separate, charge or maybe it was built into their rent rather than saying, well, do you want valet trash pickup? You know, do you want fill in the blank of what other other amenity there might be? Um, so that would be one thing that I've heard. You know, that's interesting. So we, we have, you know, we're, we've been a part of the modern ventures thing at Tumble, um, the passport program. One of our sort of, I guess, sister companies is Airwave. They do uh, manage Wi-Fi for for multifamily, and I think they're kind of moving over towards hospitality as well. Um, but you know, it's it's an interesting idea, right? Is is how do you bundle some of these things together and and get that incremental NOI out of it? 
there's something about piloting vendors, right? So how, how do you even end up in that bundle, I guess, was, was where I was going with it. Say, you know, I have one property and it has a bundle of amenities. How do I, as an outside type person, come in and, and get even, even in that bundle? Because a lot of these pilots are, are taking forever, right? Like, um, you can never get out of the, the research phase, basically. Yeah, there was a couple of people being funny at Optech saying things like that. They were saying that some of these new companies are, are pilot or, or some of the apartment operators are piloting the new companies to death. I think that was the phrase somebody used. And again, not being an operator, only being a reporter. Um, I, I'm not sure. Pilot programs seem to make a lot of sense. And it seems like if you get it right, you get it right. Um, so... I'm not really sure what the ideal length or the number of pilots that need to be done. Um, a lot of times newer products are tried out at smaller companies with smaller portfolios rather than landing the big, huge accounts. Um, I don't know. That seems like a negotiation you're probably more a part of than I'm a listener of. The other, the other portion of this, right, is like, okay, so we have, we have rents dropping from sort of traditional uh, routes. Um, very recently, Airbnb has launched uh, pretty largely into multifamily. They've been trying for a long time. I've seen them at all these different conferences for the last year, year and a half, two years now. Right now, it sounds like they have significant traction, um, sort sort of as a place. And and do you think that's as a result of looking for outside income or or utilizing these this the I don't know if you could call it capacity in these properties because I think we're kind of under capacity, right? Or under supply. Airbnb has been a great story. I think they really kind of got going around 2016, maybe 2017. And what you're talking about is an ILS, an internet listing service that they launched, I guess, last week, or at least they announced it last week. I don't know if it's up yet, um, where an apartment community that enables or allows their renters to sublet their apartment, those renters will earn a little bit of money. It's kind of a gig thing, but then again, Airbnb will get their piece and the apartment owner will get his piece, his or her piece. So uh, it's really an interesting concept and it seems like a natural to me for certain markets in certain places, especially at certain times. Um, Airbnb, they're, they're fearless because when they really got started, they were, they were Darth Vader. I mean, they were hated. They would go to these conferences and there'd be one guy on a panel or one guy in the room and he would just be on a firing squad from some of these apartment operators who didn't want to try something new or be bold enough to, to speak up, to say, yeah, you know, that could make a little bit of sense. But I think like you're saying, it's softened a little bit. I mean, there's a whole niche around short-term rentals right now. There are other companies that offer similar types of, of stays. Um, so I feel like it, it's not going away. It hasn't gone away. Um, it comes down to the renter and the renter demographic and whether they're willing to want to do it. And then all the people in the building. I mean, do they feel comfortable in that kind of a setup? Well, personally, I think I would if I was a renter. I wouldn't. I mean, I, I guess I'm kind of neighborly, but I don't really care what my neighbors do. If there's different people coming in and out, as long as there's not loud noise or smoke, I think we're probably OK. Right. Um, 
so it's going to be interesting. Now, what's funny, what I did this week, and I wish I had more to tell you, I reached out to all the ILSs, at least all that I could think of. I reached out to Zillow, to Rent, to Apartments.com. Uh, I'm trying to think of who else. And I basically said, hey, are you guys going to do the same thing? Are you going to create an option on your ILS that lets your customers click a box that says, yeah, if you move in here, yes, we have pet friendly. Yes, we're smoke free. Yes, we have washer and dryer. And yes, we allow sublets. To me, that could be an attractive marketing pitch to get people who are searching for a place to stay. Now, of course, they'll tell you that maybe that's a turnoff and that'll immediately dismiss that prospect. But, you know, I'll, I'll let the operators figure that out. I'll let them figure out how how much they want to do that. Yeah, well, and and so in this market, right, so in any sort of economic downturn, you know, price becomes really, really important, right, of of what the value of that that rent dollar is, right? So I think I think it's an it is an interesting idea where you know, say if I vacated my apartment for a couple of weekends, you know, how much money can I actually lower, reduce my own rent out of there? Um, and I do think, I think there's, there's one key thing you said there and it really depends on the market, right? Like, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't imagine this being super helpful in Omaha, Nebraska or something like that. Right. Well, maybe um, except on a Saturday for a Nebraska football game, maybe. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Except for, <laughs> except for uh, football. It season, always comes right? back to sports with me. You got to realize that. <laughs> um, so I, I mean, and it also goes into this, and I, I kind of like breezed over it earlier, but there, there's continues to be a huge shortage of housing um, in areas like San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, um, Miami, New York City, Washington D.C. actually has a, a big, big shortage. So, like, where where does this fit in to building capacity or building supply and sort of? I don't know, like what, what is, is this good? Is this a good thing for, for our, our supply? For short-term rentals? No, I mean, for lo- the long-term rental side. I mean, if, if, if the business model starts to be putting down long-term rentals for short-term stays, or that that's even a strategy, that seems like it'd be a bad, bad thing to me. Yeah, I, I, I don't know one way or the other on that. I would say that, you know, short-term renter is a completely different demographic from your typical renter. Um, so they have, there's a place for them. And then there's a place for your typical renter. Uh, as far as the housing shortage goes, yeah, all the studies say that and show that. And I believe that. And, and what they always come back to is the regulation, the regulatory side of things that's preventing housing from going up, whether it's NIMBYism or whether it's um, getting approvals or, or whatever. And some markets are, what do they call it? Uh, barrier to entry. You know, some of them have a much tougher barrier to entry than another. Um, yeah, I live in one. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you've got, you're in San Francisco, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's a, a crazy unique market there for many reasons. Um, so, you know, where do you, where do you put the housing? I, I, do you put it where people want to be? Do you put it where it's more affordable? Do you put it where it's less of a barrier? I mean, that's the big debate and people have to figure all that out. 
I mean, I saw a story in the Wall Street Journal yesterday about um, a home a home builder, not an apartment builder, a home builder wants to build a, a community in Arizona. And there's a big struggle there because they say there's probably not going to be enough water to serve those residents. So you start thinking about that and you say, well, then why are you building there? <laughs> so I, I don't know. I've never lived in Arizona. It's a unique market, I would think weather wise uh well i mean the real page data for last month basically showed i i don't want to call it an exodus but uh that is the market that is softening the fastest is in sunbelt right because i think i think a lot of it comes back to leases are expiring and people were paying so much money to live there that they can't afford to live there anymore but you're right i mean that that has been a tough it was it was the, the biggest rent growth market for about 18 months. And it's the first one, first one to the top and first one to the bottom. Right. So right. we'll see. We'll see. I mean, the other one is Florida. Florida has equally performed unbelievably well for a long time. And I think for a lot of reasons. And it's so funny because you see the hurricanes and you hear everybody crying about all that kind of stuff. And I, and I get it. That's those are horrible events. But everyone wants to be there regardless. So. Where are their housing shortages? Seems like they're usually housing shortages in places where people want to be the most, but where people want to be the most sometimes is perplexing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think we have a, I don't think we have a housing shortage in Herndon, which is where I live no, in Herndon, Virginia, no. but. Ah. No, I was thinking of like Metro DC. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Um, I mean, so that, that, that then brings up, uh, also a good point, right? So building in general is difficult. It costs a lot of money. Um, as we, so I, I think here in San Francisco, the regulatory environment is changing. I think it's changed very quickly, actually. Uh, the, the one thing that I could say just sort of anecdotally, I don't have any any data on this, right? But San Francisco is packed full of people again. I mean, re the return to office is is here. Wow. Um, and uh, I mean, the traffic is back to just being terrible. Um, That's interesting. And and you know, uh, Muni's packed and Bart is packed. Those are our two big uh, um, public transit systems. Caltrain's sort of the other one that comes up the peninsula. So, um, it. it with that return to office and I, I'm, I'm what I'm curious to see in 2023 is there's sort of, there's sort of three big factors, right? So there's the inflation that we're trying to get under, under control. Uh, we're trying to do that with interest rates and, and quantitative tightening, which then typically causes house buying to go down because mortgage, mortgage rates are higher. Um, so now, and we're having this return to office movement. So now we're bringing people back to these sort of hot, tend to be lower housing supply, high rent areas. So I wonder when in, in 2019, or excuse me, in 2020, when the pandemic hit, we saw an exodus from high rent areas to, you know, the Sun Belt and, um, you know, down to Florida. It's not cheap in Florida anymore, but. And to, and to rural areas. I mean, right. like what, Boise, Idaho was Montana. Those were super hot areas. Right. So I, I wonder, and, and then, and we saw a huge decrease in rents in San Francisco, 
I mean, it was just massive, right? Like I, I got a steal on my, I moved during the pandemic and like literally saved like 40% on my rent. Right. Um, and it's a rent control area. So, you know, it doesn't go up very fast. Um, and so what, you know, with the return to the office, I wonder if you start to see sort of the other direction, right. Where it's more of a centralization again into these markets. It's really interesting that you say that return to office is really big in San Francisco because I've been writing a lot about that. And there are certain markets, I assume, where it is happening, but it still seems to be a lot of resistance. I mean, they do a report every week. This company called Castle that you might have heard of, it begins with a K. They're sort of an access control for office buildings. They do a weekly read of how many people actually walked into an office building. And it's still at about, it's been between 47 and 49% of pre-pandemic levels, which isn't very good, for really about three months now. I'm, I'm waiting for it to spike. And I know that a lot of employers are putting down policies to make people come back. And, and some of it works and some of it doesn't. Uh, I always heard that Texas is probably the leading area for return to office. And most of that is because they never really had an office shut down there because Texas didn't ever have lockdown rules, uh, unlike most of the country, if you remember. So it's really interesting, the return to office. And that's certainly going to determine a lot of of apartment rents in those markets because you want to live near where you work. And if you're working downtown yeah. in an office, you really don't want to commute and you don't want to be far out if you don't have to be. So I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic next year for sure. Yeah, I I, I mean, it's I wouldn't say t- Elon Musk is uh, is leading this by any means, but he seems to be the most uh, outspoken public face of this right now. But with the layoffs happening in the tech sector, uh, which is you know, uh, a lot every week. Every day. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and white collar, you know, white collar more than blue collar is what I see. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, and I mean, we added, I think it was 256,000 jobs uh, to the, to the market this, this month or yeah, I think it was this month or in November. This month's report. And yeah. And yet you're seeing a huge amount of tech layoffs and, and what the attitude here is in San Francisco and, and, and the Bay basically was that um, the focus of growing super big and hiring a bunch of people um, and then letting them all go work remote just wasn't quite the strategy, right? Uh, didn't, didn't work out quite the way it sort of overinflated um, overhead costs. And so now it's like return to office 80% of the time and do layoffs. And if you don't want to follow the rules, then, you know, go ahead and find another job. Um, seems to be the, the attitude. Yeah. The leverage has changed for sure. The leverage is now with the bosses or the executive level as the reason you just said before the remote workers had a gazillion different job opportunities. They could live anywhere they wanted for any company they wanted. It was so desperate to hire. Uh, but it's definitely swung back in favor of the employer. And, and my guess is it'll continue that way for at least another year. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what, I mean, what that means to me though, especially for this industry is like any of those deals that got really hot down in the Sun Belt little, you know, maybe, maybe the, uh, the cap rates didn't make quite as much sense as, uh, as you know, as they should have sort of in previous times. Um, I don't think, we'll, I don't think we got over leveraged 
as an industry, but I, I do think there were some, uh, some frothy deals out there. Um, and just recently, you know, the whole Blackstone, uh, you know, article about lowering, uh, distributions and things like that. I, I wonder how much we're going to see, um, the effects and how soon we'll see the effects. Yeah. Not just Blackstone. There was another firm that did the same thing this week. I can't think of the name right now, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's a different time. It, it really is. The precedents don't always fit and we'll see. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't think we'll see distressed assets, uh, but I do think you'll see some sales at, uh, at losses. Um, and not, not at sort of the, the optimal uh, return rate. Well, it's interesting because the next conference that I am going to is in late January, the NMHC Annual Apartment Strategies Conference, which is, if you've not been, is, I don't know, 80% brokers seem to be attending there. It's pretty interesting. So I think we'll get a really good feel for where things are going at that meeting. Uh, it's out in Vegas. So um yeah, That's all of them fun. seem to be in Vegas this year. <laughs> it's funny how the travel goes in different cycles. You know, you'll have everything in Vegas one year, then everything will be in Miami, then everything will be in Chicago. So I don't know. Yeah. I like going anywhere. So what 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 do you think we should be on the lookout for in uh, in 2023, having said all of all the things we talked about this uh, the last half hour? Uh, that's a pretty wide open question. Uh, <laughs> um. You know, what are, what are the questions that Paul will be asking? Yeah, in, in I mean, it seems like as we found at the Optech conference, which was what, two months ago? I can't even remember. Um, automation and centralized leasing have been were the number one topics, I think, back in 2022. And a lot of companies are moving in that direction and they're still kind of figuring all that out. Um, AI keeps getting better and people who are using it are learning more from it. And that's creating different situations for staffing. It's creating different things for resident engagement. Um, So my guess is that'll still be a top topic um, in 2023. And uh, yeah, I mean, you you mentioned distressed buildings. I, I'm just kind of wondering if anything's going to happen with concessions. I just I just have to wonder about that. Um, we'll see if renters are going to have a big concessions push or not. Again, it comes back to the spring leasing season. That's the big that's the big season. Um, usually, when people are moving. So what traditionally what what have you seen kind of move that one way or the other? Is it just sort of consumer sentiment or is it uh, employment and whether people have a job and whether they are making a good salary and can afford these rents. Um, that's, that's pretty much what drives everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One thing that I thought was interesting was on the HR side is really taking care of your employees and being good to them and, and giving them a lot of uh, support and everything. I mean, the employees that work in apartment communities have had to deal with so much in the last couple of years. It's a tough job. I mean, it's really a tough job and you can see that with with some hiring challenges and and maintenance and things. So I'm hoping that people who work in apartment communities stay with it and, and don't, don't burn out, but, uh, controlling the burnout is, is always a factor, I think. 
Yeah, well, we we had Tony Souza on here from RPM, and that was kind of the the main thing that we talked about, right? That's really into Tony's sort of uh, philosophy on on operations and uh, training the best, showing them opportunity um, to grow, and and then you know facilitating that growth and giving them support. Um, I mean that that's important at any company, I would say, but I would say particularly at difficult jobs. Uh, like property management or you're the face. Right. Um, you know, I, I think it's even more important, right? Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to, I want to learn more about your product. I know we're not supposed to talk about it, but it's just, what are you talking about? It just seems so intriguing to me that it's kind of an opportunity for renters to earn money by doing laundry is, is, do I have that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So that, that is, uh, launching widely soon, but we, we are doing it here in San Francisco. Um, and the idea, so there's, there's, there's sort of three things that happen in, in these types of markets, right? So one, you tend to see more employment, unemployment, um, and that tends to reduce, uh, sort of labor costs. It also tends to uh, reduce, you know, income going into to different people's uh, lives. That's kind of one of the things we talked about with rent and everything. Um, but the other thing is that the people who are employed tend to be more busy, right? So the, you tend to have just less time. So here's a great place where you're basically qualified. Everyone's pretty much qualified as long as you've done laundry before, right? Uh, and... You know, we have these laundry rooms everywhere. They're everywhere. They're literally everywhere. So why not create a little extra income for folks that are that are home or stay-at-home parents or maybe they are out of a job for right then and take, you know, a free up time from these busy people that, you know, just literally don't have the time to do it um, and do it in a way that's convenient and it's fast and has high quality, right? And so... Um, that's really the goal there is, is your trading time and it's built in a marketplace so that the quality remains high. So the people at home are making a significant amount of money that they care. Um, the rating is tied to the individual washer so that me as the person getting my clothes washed and the consumer, I can say, Hey, you know, I have a five star, you know, this person is going to do a good job. And if they don't, you know, there, there's going to be some sort of repercussions there and the bad ones will fall out of the marketplace. Um, and so it, it's, it's an interesting dynamic for sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, it fits into the gig situation and I think the gig situation is a good one. I don't know from an entrepreneurial or from a capitalist point of view, I, I, I'm intrigued by opportunities to make an extra dollar here and dollar there. I mean, I don't know. It seems perfectly fine to me. I, I, I have no problem doing laundry. I think it's, uh, it's kind of a, a diversion from your everyday work or whatever else you're doing. So, uh, someone, someone coined this term that I really liked called laundry banking. (laughs) And so we were, we were talking about this, right? And so it was like, wow, this, this kind of allows you, if you have like a free day or something, you could probably hop on Tumble and do some laundry, you know, do four, five, six loads of laundry. And then now you've banked kind of credit so that you don't have to do laundry later. Yeah. Because you could just send it out. You've, you've basically, 
you know, it's a wash. There you go. <laughs> there you go. So, um, yeah, we should, we should be wider in 2023. Uh, Virginia is certainly, um, on the list of places we are headed. Um, and it'll be, it's been a wild ride. I mean, I, I remember the first pitch deck I showed investors back in 2020, it had this model on it and, um, no one thought it would ever work (laughs) because of lots of barriers that we have since overcame, but, um, now it's, it's definitely, definitely working. Thanks so much. We're going to wrap it up here. Um, but thanks so much, Paul, for coming on. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to the show. Uh, if you want to connect with us, you can find us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Amenitize or Die. Talk to you next time.